Welcome everybody again to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and today we will talk about a very busy weekend of boxing, four fights that I will review in full detail, another lengthy question and answer session, and we will finish the podcast with my historical overview of my ninth greatest fighter of the last 45 years, my favorite fighter of all time, my ultimate idol, the Motor City Cobra, Thomas Hitman Hearns. But before we talk about the Hitman, and before we get to the question and answer session, and before we begin a recap of last weekend's action-packed fight cards, the debut episode of the Fight Game Podcast Patreon exclusive show, The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, in which I recap the 10 biggest fights of Muhammad Ali's career, starting with the second Ali versus Sonny Liston fight, May 25th, 1965. That will be the debut uh, podcast on the Fight Game Media Patreon extra tier. And uh, the, link to the, 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 the link to that Patreon podcast is in the description of this podcast five dollars a month you get not only my series on muhammad ali but my series from last year of the 10 greatest upsets in boxing history one of which is a precursor to this series cassius clay who would then change his name to muhammad ali's shocking seventh round stoppage of sunny liston a fight in which ali Put on a virtuoso performance Except for the round In which Liston tried to cheat And blinded him With some type of ointment Off his gloves But Ali recovered And he batted Liston And Liston quit Before the seventh round began And Ali became The undisputed heavyweight champion of the world Well Part one of the lifetime Life and times of Muhammad Ali I go through the aftermath Of the first Liston fight I talk about what postponed the second Liston fight at first. I talk about how the WBA illegally stripped Ali of his title. And then I talk about Malcolm X's assassination and the threat that was looming around Ali's head before his May 25th, 1965 rematch with Sonny Liston. And... The reason the venue was changed from Boston to Lewiston, Maine. And this is all through what my father told me when I was a little boy. My father would tell me and he would regurgitate this info throughout his life and throughout my life until he passed away 22 and a half years ago back in 2000. My father used to always say that Ali was his first Fighter he idolized my, my 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 first fighter was Thomas Hearns. My father's first fighter was Muhammad Ali. So my father would tell me as I was growing up, and even until he died, he was fifty-two. I was thirty-two. He would always tell me stories about Ali from the nineteen sixties. I'll be sharing you, sharing with you guys those stories my father told me, 
Because as you guys know, any type of podcast I do, I always honor my father. And when it comes to other podcasts that I do that's non-boxing related, I honor my mother and my father. So there you go. Now, on to this weekend's past fights. And we had a tremendous weekend of boxing. Let me start with Saturday first. Work our way backwards. Madison Square Garden. Amanda Serrano in a 10-round bloodbath beat Erica Cruz to become the undisputed featherweight champion of the world. She is now the WBC, IBF, WBO, and WBA champion as Erica Cruz was the WBA uh, champion and Serrano had the other three Alphabet Soup organization titles. Serrano and there will be a question about her rematch with Katie Taylor by one of my listeners. What what uh, what do I think of the rematch and what Amanda has to do to win? I'll talk about that later. Uh, Amanda Serrano is a blood and guts fighter. But I'm worried about the amount of punishment she has taken in both this fight and the first fight with Katie Taylor. But great win. And she's already a Hall of Famer. Lock it up. If she retired today, she'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And another female fighter that's working her way to possibly one day become a Hall of Famer is the beautiful boxer, in my opinion, one of the most, other than Layla Ali, probably the single most beautiful female boxer I've ever seen. The Detroit goddess, Alicia Baumgartner, also... Became an undisputed champion. And she put herself in the Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano mix. Alicia Baumgartner was also the WBC, IBF, and WBO champion at Super Featherweight. Defeated Elham Makaled convincingly over 10 rounds to become the undisputed Super Featherweight champion. So now... You have an undisputed super featherweight champion in Baumgartner, undisputed featherweight champion in Amanda Serrano. Serrano and Katie Taylor reportedly have signed to fight a rematch in Dubai. I would love to see the winner of that fight face Alicia Baumgartner. Is Alicia ready? Well, look, she's an undisputed champion. She's cleaned out the featherweight division, the super featherweight division. It's time for her to get a huge money payday. Huge money fight And Against Katie Or Amanda That would be Alicia's biggest Biggest Purse In her entire career Kudos to her trainer The Detroit legend Tony Harrison Taking up After his deceased father Had had Trained Alicia Baumgartner Tony Harrison Proprietor of the Superbad gym In Detroit, Michigan And he's got a fight Coming up In Six weeks Against Tim Zhu one of the biggest fights of Tony Harris's career because a win over Zoo puts him in line for a third fight versus Charlo. So uh, kudos to Tony Harrison, who's doing a phenomenal job guiding the great and beautiful Alicia Baumgartner's career. And now, on to Friday Night's Fights from Glendale, Arizona. First, Arnold Barboza won a workmanlike 10-round decision over Jose Pedraza. Barboza is, is what you get. What you see is what you get with Barboza. Decent boxer. Um, has a decent jab. He's not a world beater. He's a good fighter. He finds ways to win. 
I would love to see him fight Teofimo Lopez because because of Lopez's uh, diminishing skills, even at the tender age of 25, 26 years old. Barbosa would be a live underdog, if not an even money, uh, uh, an even money. It, it'd be an even money fight. It could because Teofimo Lopez has looked horrible in his last three fights versus first versus Cambosis, and and then his next two fights against journeyman type fighters. I would love to see Barbosa versus Teo Lopez. Because I'm be honest with you right now Barbosa's not beating the Regis Progresses Jose Ramirez's And uh, Josh Taylor's of the world Now he he has no shot against those guys But against Tio Lopez Who has lost a step Who doesn't seem to have the same hunger He used to have When he beat Lomachenko He could definitely score an upset in that fight And that would be an intriguing matchup The main event in Glendale Second week in a row We've had a great fight a fight of the year type candidate. Emmanuel Navarrete, the Mexican star, versus Liam Wilson, an unknown from Australia, for the vacant WBC, I mean, WBO Super Featherweight Championship. Um, the WBC title will be fought for very shortly. Both titles were given up by Shakur Stevenson as he moved up to 135 pounds. And Shakur will be fighting in Prudential Center, Newark, New Jersey, April 8th. And like I was the last time, I will be there. Tickets go on sale this Friday. Um, I don't think I'll buy it Friday, but I will be buying my tickets eventually. And I will be going to see who I think is going to be the next pound for pound king. After the Bud Crawfords and Spences of the world go by the wayside. And that is Shakur Stevenson, the best defensive fighter on the planet. No one else comes close. Now, Navarrete and Liam Wilson. First three rounds, I thought Navarrete was very aggressive and he landed the harder punches and he was the more effective puncher. You could have made an argument for Wilson winning the first round. Rounds two and three were all Navarrete. And now you hear this clown. And ladies and gentlemen, once again, I'm going to go on a tirade about these goddamn horrible boxing announcers that we have that needs to be fumigated from the sport. It's really it's it's a cancer on the sport. The zone with the with the with the uh the three stooges and Todd Gruesome, Chris Xanax, and Sergio Moron, they're fucking horrible. Okay? They don't bring anything to the table. Chris Mannix is should not be getting paid to be a boxing analyst. He didn't start watching boxing until after he graduated from college. The man was in high school when Riddick Bo fought Andrew Galata in the garden, and he said he first learned about it by watching eight years later, seven years later, the HBO series on infamous fights like that fight. I'm like, what? What? Man, get this guy the fuck out of here. Right? Then, ESPN, with Joe, I scream at everything. Joe Testator could be taking a shit in the bathroom, and this is him announcing the shit while he's on the toilet bowl. It's coming out! Tim, Tim, go get me some toilet paper, Tim! The shit is coming out! Timothy Bradley, who... 
is horrible. And when somebody starts throwing punches and looks like he hurt the other guy, he was like, ooh, 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 oh, man, what the hell is that? Andre Ward was an excellent commentator on HBO when he was alongside Max Kellerman and Jim Lampley on ESPN. He has announced to the level of Bradley and Tessito. He's been less than average. He really pisses me off. He's like he's compromised. How do you have Max Kellerman on your payroll and you don't have him as a color commentator when Max Kellerman was phenomenal when he took over for the drunk, always asleep Larry Merchant? I don't know why they don't utilize Max Kellerman. And you don't need three guys in a booth. That's overkill. You don't need three guys in a booth. All you need is to all these. And it's just, it's just horrible. All these boxing teams with three men booths. Come on, get this shit out of here. On to the fight. So in the third round, Bradley, go, Bradley goes, oh, this fight's not going to last much longer. Navarrete's doing what he wants to do. Less than a round later. Navarrete walks into a vicious left hook by Wilson. Navarrete goes down and he's out on his feet. Now, Navarrete was smart. He was hurt badly. He was up, but he didn't have his senses, so he spit his mouthpiece out. Now, people are bitching and moaning all over social media. Oh, the referee showed favoritism. Oh, the referee did a bad job. First and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, when Navarrete went there, Navarrete was down two or three seconds when Wilson landed while Navarrete was on the ground, a right uppercut. The referee could have stopped the fight right there, issued a warning, and given time to Navarrete. No, he let that slide. He did the count. Navarrete got up before the count of eight, spit out his mouthpiece. The referee picked it up, tried to put it back in Navarrete. Now, you know, people complain, oh, we show fit. It could have been worse. He could have... Brought Navarrete to the neutral corner, had one of Navarrete's handlers pour water into the mouthpiece and stick it in his mouth. That had been more time, more, more, but no, he put it in Navarrete's mouth and he tried to continue the fight. There was no favoritism here. I, to me, it wasn't incompetence. He gave the benefit of the doubt to Wilson when Wilson hit Navarrete while Navarrete was on the canvas. And he tried to put the mouthpiece in. And now Wilson blew the knockout because he went headhunting. He should have went to the body. Had Liam Wilson gone to the body towards the end of the fourth round at the beginning of the fifth round when Navarrete was still out on his feet, he would have knocked out Navarrete. No, he throws wild shots looking for that punch to knock out Navarrete. Navarrete clears his head in the fifth round. Sixth round, he hurts Wilson, seventh round, he hurts Wilson. Eighth round, a, a phenomenal body attack beating up on Wilson. Ninth round, early in the round, he lands a beautiful right cross that drops Wilson. Wilson gets up, and Wilson proceeds to take a beating for the next minute, minute and a half. Navarrete landed some devastating body shots. The difference between Navarrete and Wilson. Navarrete went to the body when Wilson was hurt. Wilson foregoed the body and instead went headhunting and tied himself out. Finally, after a barrage of punt body shots and headshots, referee stops the fight. Edwin Navarrete is the new WBO alphabet soup 
130-pound champion. And looks like he will be going on to fight Oscar Valdez in what will be uh, Bobby Chacon versus Danny Lopez type war. Two men whose defenses are horrible and they're great offensive fighters. So this is going to be a war because neither man can miss a shot. Navarrete is a wild Unorthodox fighter He throws wild shots Navarrete would get dissected By a Devin Haney or Shakur Stevenson Or Frank Martin He'd be food for those guys Navarrete is great against brawlers like Valdez It's going to be give and take We will see who wins Hopefully that fight gets signed It should be signed They're both promoted by that old senile bastard Bob Arum Now On to the Q and say the the Q and A portion of the podcast. Here we go. For those who want me to answer their question, Twitter on Twitter, ask me ask Rob Silva hashtag ask Rob Silva hashtag ask Rob Silva. First question. Got a couple from LL School K, long time listener of all my. Shows throughout the several different p- platforms I've done over 10 years now. He quotes Edgar Belanga. I already know I'm a star. I'm ready for big time fights. And LL School K asked me, he still boxes? Unfortunately, Belanga still boxes. Belanga is a stiff. He's one dimensional. Uh, his offense is putrid. He's got power in both hands. But his jab is horrible. He's got no defense. His stamina is shot. Belanga ate, uh, fought a bunch of cab drivers, knocked them out in a row in the first round, and the media was eating it up. Bob Arum was eating it up. Top rank was eating it up. Then in the last couple of fights, he's fought live opponents. You could you could make a argument he lost his last fight in which his jaw was broken and he bit the guy in the ear and got suspended for six months from New York State. The minute Berlanga gets in with an elite 168-pound fighter, he's getting put in the hospital and he's going to get one of those beatings that will ruin him for the rest of his career. He's not that good. And ladies and gentlemen, you ask me, why don't I like Berlanga? Why, why, why I don't Berlanga? Look, I'm a black Puerto Rican. I'm preconditioned to like Puerto Rican fighters. I got that from my father. Every time my father saw a new Puerto Rican fighter that was decent, he was like, oh, this guy's got a shot. Whether it was Alex Ramos, whether it was uh, Edwin Rosario, young Hector Camacho, Juan Laporte. Uh, when, when, whenever he saw a Felix Tito Trinidad, whenever he saw a young up-and-coming Puerto Rican boxer, He'd become an instant fan because he was Puerto Rican. I never was a fan from Belanga because the first time I saw him, I was like, this guy, why are they rating this guy so well? He's not that good. My father would have said the same thing. He's going to be a walking punching bag when he fights an elite fighter. He's horrible. He's horrible. He can barely beat middle-of-the-road fighters. Yeah, he could beat Uber drivers, but he can't beat middle-of-the-road fighters. How the hell is he going to... Be ready for big fights. The first time he faces a live opponent, a real good elite boxer, he's getting his career ruined. Okay, now, on to the next question. Another question from LL School K. And LL asks, 
Should a fighter in boxing retire once they grow conscious? I feel like to be successful to be successful in the sport, you have to be inhumane. Wilder broke down after he killed Hellenius. Also, Ali cared too much for his opponents and got Parkinson's. That's a good question. Should a fighter retire once they gain conscious? You know what? It's sort of like when a fighter accidentally kills a guy in the ring. He's never the same again. Emil Griffith accidentally killed Benny uh, Kid Parrot in the ring. And afterwards, Emil Griffith barely knocked anybody out. Uh, for the next almost 20 years of his career, he might have scored two or three knockouts. And back then, he fought several times. Emil Griffith had over 100 career pro fights. So... Once a fighter gains con- uh, conscious, it usually happens after uh, he does serious damage to his opponent. Nigel Benz is another example. He was never the same after that war with uh, Gerald McClellan. I don't think he knocked anybody else out after McClellan. He lost the last three fights of his career, too, after uh, not, t- not too shortly after that war with Gerald McClellan. So... In order for a fighter to be successful, he has to not worry about hurting his other opponent. You made a good point about Wilder crying after Helene, after he knocked out Hellenius. And uh, was Ali too soft on his on his opponents? You, uh, I'll save that for the Patreon. That'll be a question I'll answer during the uh, Life and Times of Muhammad Ali. But excellent question, LL. And... In a way, you are right. They do uh, lose something and set themselves up for a a possible defeat. Okay. Jesus Salas asked me, you are the trainer of Amanda Serrano. What strategy you use to beat Katie Taylor? Katie Taylor outboxed Amanda Serrano in their first fight. When they slugged, it was even Steven. Um, Taylor hurt her a couple of times, but uh, Taylor recovered and was able to out jab, out hustle, and out punch Serrano to win a well deserved decision. Amanda Serrano has abandoned the jab. She cannot beat Katie Taylor without the use of what she's had in the past a very good left jab. If she doesn't use that jab, she's going to lose again. The key is for her to jab more, and it will set up her punches because Katie Taylor has never been the greatest defensive fighter in the world, but Katie Taylor throws a lot of punches, and she doesn't stop jabbing. Amanda Serrano has to utilize the jab. Here's another question from Jesus. If you could see anyone in concert just once from any era, who would it be? And Jesus furthers the question by me naming five well number one off the top of my head is michael jackson never got to see him in concert even though when michael died in 2010 at 50 i was 42 actually no in 2009 michael died michael was 50 i was 41 and but yet i had never seen michael in concert so him Number one, um, I can't add Prince to the list because I saw Prince back in 1988 in New Orleans. Michael Jackson won. Uh, Sade, 
who's still alive and um, one of my Mount Rushmore of singers, one of my top four singers of all time, uh, amazing woman, amazing soul, amazing songwriter. Um, definitely would love to have seen her from any any um in any generation. Teddy Pendergrass, Donnie Hathaway. I would have loved to have seen those brothers in concert. And a fifth person. Who would be the fifth act? I only named one woman. I should name another. Who would be the fifth that I know? Well, oh, Mariah Carey. I've never seen Mariah Carey in concert. So Mariah Sade, Teddy Pendergrass, Donnie Hathaway, and the great one, the greatest of all time, Michael Jackson. All right. Jesus has another question. The question Jesus asks is, did Wilfredo Gomez have a chance versus Salvador Sanchez if they had a second fight? Uh, the, the answer to that question, Jesus, is no. Salvador had Wilfredo Gomez's number. Wilfredo Gomez, by the time he fought Salvador Sanchez the first time, had abandoned his elite boxing skills. He had fallen in love with his knockout punch because he had knocked everybody out. Salvador Sanchez is one of the greatest, if not the greatest counterpuncher in the history of the sport. Salvador Sanchez is on that James Tony level of great counter. The two greatest counterpunches I ever saw were James Tony. And Salvador Sanchez. They're my 1A and 1B. You, I can't prohibitively say one was greater than the other in terms of counterpunching. Salvador counterpunched Wilfredo Gomez all night in their first fight. And if they would have fought 100 times, Sanchez would have knocked out Gomez 100 times. Gomez was tailor-made for Salvador Sanchez. Um, because Gomez wouldn't box. The only way Gomez would have had a shot against Sanchez is what my father thought he was going to do in the first fight, in-and-out movement, in-and-out movement. Didn't do that. And because of that, he was taken apart in the first fight, and he would have continually been taken apart the rest of his career. I've got one final question, and that's from my buddy from Delaware, now living in Carolina, Mike Troy. He asked, you know how I feel about Michael Nunn, um, about a possible, about a, a 1994 Roy Jones versus a 1988 Michael Nunn. I don't try and do these, uh, Mike, I, try, I, I don't try and do these uh, scenarios of one era versus the other era, especially two fighters who fought at the same time during their career. So... Hypothetically, I'm not going to answer this question. I'm answer it this way. A 1994 Roy Jones Jr. was still fighting when Michael Nunn was still active. And a 1994 Roy Jones Jr. would have knocked out Michael Nunn just like a 1991 James Tony knocked out a 1991 Michael Nunn. Uh, Roy Jones would have been too quick, too fast, and he would have knocked Michael Nunn out probably with a leaping left hook. And so those are the questions for this week's Q&A session. Remember, if you want your questions answered, hashtag AskRobSilver on Twitter. And now on to my ninth greatest fighter of the last 45 years, the Motor City Cobra, Thomas Hitman Hearns. And I begin.
As a child, not unlike many young boxing fans back then in the late 1970s, my first boxing idol was Muhammad Ali. But the first fighter I idolized from the very beginning of his career was the Motor City Cobra Thomas Hitman Hearns, my ninth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. In Hearns' amateur career, he only scored 11 knockouts in over 160 fights as a tall and lanky lightweight. It wasn't until local Detroit and Kronk gym trainer Emmanuel Stewart modified Hearns' style right before his pro debut that the vaunted hitman power began to surface. Beginning with his pro debut of no in November of 1977, Hearns went on to knock out his first 17 opponents. The majority of these fights were held in Hearns' hometown of Detroit. Detroit boxing fans came out in droves to support their local hero. At the time, I followed Hearns' early career by reading boxing magazines such as The Ring and World Boxing. These magazines built Hearns as an indestructible monster who stood six foot two and 147 pounds, a giant among welterweights. The first time I saw Hearns fight was his first nationally televised fight, January 11, 1979, versus highly rated Canadian welterweight Clyde Gray. I couldn't believe what I saw on my small black and white television. Hearns was indeed a lanky giant, but his skills were much more elaborate than the boxing magazines had detailed. His left jab was, in my opinion, as good as Larry Holmes' legendary left jab. Hearns' jab was like a battering ram, landing all night on Gray. Gray took a horrific beating, eating jabs, and Hearns' missile of a right cross finally being finished in the 10th and final round. As the fight ended, my father and I saw what we felt was going to be one of the greatest fighters of all time. Hearns' assault on the 147-pound division continued throughout 1979, almost blinding top welterweight contender Harold, Wilson, Harold Weston in May, causing Weston both a detached retina and a premature retirement. It wouldn't be the last time Hearns' jab would cause such major consequences for a fighter. Hearns' sojourn would eventually garner him the number one contender spot for the WBA 147-pound title held by longtime belt holder and devastating puncher Jose Pepino Cuevas. Their fight, held on August 2, 1980, in Detroit's legendary and now demolished Joe Louis Arena, was built as World War II. It was more akin to the Boston Massacre. My father was correct in his, in his assessment that the five foot eight Cuevas, Cuevas was tailor-made for Hearns. Hearns' performance that night was offensively perfect. His jab and legendary right, cro legendary right cross landed at will throughout the opening stanza. Hearns' game plan, as orchestrated by Stewart, was to attack Cuevas because Cuevas couldn't fight backing up. Cuevas, despite his scary power, couldn't keep Hearns off him. Finally, towards the end of the second round, Hearns landed two consecutive spectacular right crosses that dropped Quavers face first. Amazingly, Quavers got up at nine but was out on his feet. His corner ran in and immediately stopped the fight. At the tender age of 21, Hearns was on top of the world. The time was right for him to fight the winner of the upcoming rematch between Roberto Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard. Hearns easily defended his WBA welterweight title three times before signing the fight Leonard in what would simply be called the showdown. The fight would be held outside in the Caesars parking lot, Caesars Palace parking lot in Las Vegas. The reason they held the fight outdoors was because the venue inside was too small to hold such an epic fight between the two best fighters on the planet. On September 16, 1981, Hearns Leonard put on one of the greatest fights in boxing history. 
My father and I watched this fight on closed circuit inside a South Bronx theater. My father was in, it was inebriated and was boasting that Hearns was going to kill Leonard. The first five rounds saw Hearns dominate Leonard, landing his jab and right cross at will. Leonard couldn't outbox Hearns as Hearns was too tall for him. As great fighters do, as great fighters do, Leonard changed his approach. He began stalking Hearns and attacked Hearns' body, staggering him several times in round six and seven. Then Hearns changed his approach beginning around eight. He began to move and stay outside, outlanding J- Leonard with his jab. After 12 rounds, Leonard was way behind on all three scorecards, and his left eye was almost completely shut. He needed a miracle. The 13th round saw Leonard desperately attack Hearns with feverish combinations, staggering Hearns, and Hearns barely survived the round. Finally, in the 14th, Hearns was helpless and completely exhausted when referee Davy Pearl stopped the fight. It was the most magnificent fight in the history of the welterweight division. It was not unlike seeing Michael Jordan and LeBron James in their primes playing each other in a one-on-one game of basketball. Both Leonard and Hearns lost and won in this fight. Hearns, despite losing, showed the world his greatness by showing heart and sublime boxing skills no one knew he had other than my father and I. Leonard, despite losing, would suffer a detached red in his left eye due to the punishment he took in the fight. Leonard would only fight one more time before announcing his retirement a little over a year later. After his heartbreaking loss to Leonard, Hearns won three straight fights in middleweight before acquiring a shot at WBC super welterweight champion Wilfred Benitez. Benitez, who similar to Hearns had suffered his only career loss to Leonard, had looked incredible as champion. He systematically picked Maurice Maurice Hope apart before knocking him out with a picture-perfect right cross to win the title on May 23, 1981. And in his last fight, he was coming off a virtuoso performance against the legendary aforementioned Roberto Duran. Benitez was one of the greatest counterpunchers and defensive fighters of all time. He was in his prime at 24, as was Hearns. It was two of the greatest fighters of their era facing each other in an intriguing and anticipated matchup. It was also a fight that my father had major reservations about. My father was Puerto Rican and very proud of his heritage. His idol was Roberto Clemente, the the single greatest baseball player and athlete ever to hail from Puerto Rico. My father loved Benitez, but because of his wizardry inside the ring, and both because of his wizardry inside the ring and his Puerto Rican heritage. He also loved Hearns, as Hearns had offensive weaponry, in his his opinion, only rivaled by the great Shigre Robinson. My father rooted for Benitez, but he knew deep down inside that despite Benitez's gifts, Hearns' jab and length were insurmountable to overcome. My father was correct. Hearns kept Benitez at bay throughout the entire 15 rounds with his jab and length. Benitez had no answer and was soundly defeated by a 15-round decision. That December 1982 evening, Hearns once again proved that there wasn't a man alive who could outbox him. Benitez did not have the aggressive style to try and outslug him, a la Leonard. Hearns only fought twice over the next 18 months due to injuries suffered to his right hand. His next major fight occurred on June 15, 1984 against Durant. Both my father and I knew Duran didn't have a shot in hell at defeating Hearns. Hearns had a 7-inch height advantage against Duran and was, and was much stronger at 154 as Duran was at his best at 135, 
135 pounds. In one of the most incredible displays of one-sided brutality, Hearns knocked out Durant cold in the second round. It was eerily similar to George Foreman's second-round destruction of Joe Frazier to win the heavyweight title back in January of 1973. Durant did not land one significant shot the entire two rounds. The win secured Hearns a shot at Marvin Hagler's world middleweight title. Unfortunately, as chronicled earlier and will be chronicled again when I do Marvin Hagler's historical tribute. It would be another heartbreaking evening for both Hearns and me as his biggest friends. As you all know, Hagler knocked out Hearns in the third round in one of the greatest fights in boxing history. Hearns would defend the 154-pound title one more time before relinquishing the title in the fall of 1986. Then in 1987, Hearns would win two more world titles to become a four-division champion. On March 7, 1987, in front of his hometown Detroit fans, Hearns put on one of his most devastating performances in knocking out Dennis Andres in the 10th round to win the WBC light heavyweight title. Then seven months later, Hearns knocked out the tough Argentinian brawler Juan Domingo Roldan in four rounds to win the WBC middleweight title. Going into 1988, the 29-year-old hitman looked to be better than ever. On June 6, 1988, Hearns defended his WBC 160-pound title against the rugged South Bronx brawler Iran Barkley. For the first 10 minutes of the fight, Hearns landed at will and was unmercifully beating Barkley. Then, shockingly, Barkley landed a double right cross late in the third round that put Hearns to sleep. My father and I went to Master Square Garden to see this fight on closed circuit. We were heartbroken when, when Hearns lost that night. We were in total disbelief walking out, out of the arena that night. Five months later, Hearns barely eked out a decision against James Kinchin in a war that saw Hearns in trouble several times. Hearns won the bogus WBO super middleweight title that night and tried to make a claim that he was now the first five-division world champion in boxing history. That night, Hearns looked like a shot fighter. In early 1989, Hearns signed to fight Leonard in a rematch that took eight years to make. Hearns would go into the rematch a heavy underdog. What we didn't know was that Hearns still had a lot left in his tank. On June 12, 1989, Hearns' left jab and reach once again gave Leonard hell. He knocked down Leonard twice, and Leonard had the hitman in severe trouble twice. The, this fight was not the technical masterpiece their first encounter was, as both men were significantly, significantly slower. It was, however, a fight full of drama, and Hearns seemed to have done enough to warrant the decision. Shockingly, the fight was scored a draw. In subsequent, in subsequent years, Leonard has admitted that Hearns should have won that fight. Hearns, still feeling he had something to prove, moved up to light heavyweight and after a few wins got a shot at the WBA 107-pound champion, Virgil Hill. On June 3, 1991, Hearns, despite being once again a heavy underdog, turned back the clock by out-jabbing and outboxing a master technician in Hill. In Hearns' entire career, no fighter had ever outboxed him. All his losses had been to fighters who had to brawl with him in order to beat Hearns. Against Hill, Hearns' vaunted left jab was a difference in the fight as he kept Hill from utilizing his own lethal jab. Hearns won a clear-cut decision in winning his second 175-pound title. It would be the last significant win of his career. On March 20th, 1992, Hearns defended his WBA light heavyweight title in a rematch against Barkley. Hearns and Barkley engaged in a, sav in a savage war as Barkley dropped Hearns early and broke his nose. 
Hearn showed the same amount of heart he displayed in his fight in his fights against Kitchener in the Leonard rematch. Barkley won the title via split decision. For all intents and purposes, Hearn's career was over. He would fight sporadically over the next 14 years, winning 11 out of 13 fights before finally retiring in 2006 at the age of 47. Now, I'm trying to get this correctly. 11 of his last 13 fights. I think he only lost, I think it was, he only lost one other time after losing to uh, Barkley. And that was uh, to Uriah Grant in a fight in which Hearns injured his uh, ankle. So I I missed, I, I missed, wrote, um, I mistakenly wrote 11 out of 13 fights. Thomas Hearns, in my opinion, was the greatest offensive fighter the sport has ever seen. He mastered every single punch. The f- he mastered every single punch, including a battering, a battering ram of a left jab and a right cross that is on the same level as Alexis Arguello, Deontay Wilder, and Ernie Shavers. Despite a sometimes shaky chin and stamina, Hearns still went on to retire with a record of 61 wins, five losses, one draw with 48 knockouts. He fought a who's who of legendary fighters and was dominant at both 147 and 154. He had a style that would give any of the all-time greats from, the, from 147 to 175 pounds hell. All of these attributes is why Thomas Hearns is the ninth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I once again thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, uh, continuing to support this podcast and to support your, uh, my show as a, as a listener. Thank you and Until next week, everybody, please be blessed and be a blessing.